Well, good morning, everybody. It's good seeing you all again. Good seeing uh, familiar faces we haven't seen in a few weeks and also new faces. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us, spending your Sunday with us. If you're watching and listening online, um, thank you also for taking the time to, to, to check us out. Last week when we were last together, uh, we saw how Jesus used a parable and a real situation to show us what it means to what it means and what it looks like to hear and obey the word of the Lord. In this week's passage, we're going to be looking at a few miracles. I'm going to try to get to the entire passage, but I don't want to go too long, so I'm going to at least try to get to the to two of them. Um, and we're going to see how through those miracles Jesus proved how important and how powerful his word actually is. Now, in that message that we heard last week, we learned that faith comes through receiving the word of God into an understanding heart. In this morning's message, we'll be learning another valuable lesson. Faith must be tested before it can be trusted. You see, if we're truly committed to our faith in God, then we will and must be tested. If you think you're going to go through your Christian walk without being tested, unfortunately, you're mistaken. The truth is, there will be tests. And there will be times when we will fail, and there will be times when we will overcome. But the stronger we hold on to the Lord, the more we hold on to him, the more we understand, the more we realize that he is there, then the better we will be equipped to, to overcome these, these challenges. So again, although those tests aren't pleasant in the short run, the more we persevere and overcome them, the more we mature in our faith, and develop patience, experience, and hope. So before we get into this morning's reading, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you brought us all here together. Uh, Lord, as this year starts to draw to an end, um, it does get busier, and it does get hectic, and you know, a lot of things start to come up, um, uh, family situations, uh, having to go travel and having family travel out here, and, and that can be challenging and that can be difficult. Lord, but in, in spite of all that, when all that, as all that stuff is happening, remind us, may we be reminded that you're there, that you will give us the peace and comfort that we need. Let us look to you in those stressful moments and those stressful times, Lord, and and see that with you, there is no chaos, Lord. So uh, as we go through this study, Lord, uh, use me to speak your truth. Pour your spirit in this room and soften hearts and minds so that everyone here will receive a message, receive a word. We'll just hear from you in general, Lord, so that 
they'll leave here encouraged and, and strengthened. Bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. And the word of God says, One day he and his disciples got into a boat, and he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased and there was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves, and they obey him. We'll stop there for, for now. Um, every time I, I read this story, for some reason, that uh, the theme song to Gilgan's Island comes through my mind. And if you're old enough to know what show that is, it's, it was a pretty funny show that I used to watch as a kid. And um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Check it out online. Some good comedy there. Um, but uh, again, I think about the three-hour tour, the storm, and, and all that. It's kind of similar, but, but this, this story, again, is real. It really happened, and there's a lot of lessons here. Um, I was having a conversation with my wife early this week. You know, there are a lot of things also in, in my own life that that I'm dealing with uh, personally and, and professionally, even, even in the ministry here. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. There's a lot of things that, um, that are going on that can stress me out, you know, and, and, and so we were having this conversation and I was telling her, man, I'm gonna have to teach on this and, and here I am just feeling like I'm just focusing on the storm. And she reminded me again what Jesus told his disciples. Where's your faith? And she was right. I got to always remember that. I always have to keep that in mind. Where is my faith? But as we begin this morning, with this, we begin this morning with the story, story of a sea trip that tested the faith of the disciples and how Jesus displayed to them, again, just how powerful his word actually is. Now, this story wouldn't make any sense, really, without these four pieces of information that we get right from the onset. See, that Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. In other words, he was with them. He was with his disciples. Secondly, we see that Jesus told them what to do. He issued a command. We're going to go from here, and we're going to go there. And then we see that they set out. Thirdly, they set out. 
In other words, they listened and obeyed. And fourthly, Jesus fell asleep. In other words, he just let them take care of it. He was there, but he just let them take care of the navigation of the boat. Or he told them where they were going to go, and he's like, take care of it. So he napped. He took a sleep. I mean, he took, took some rest, some well-needed rest, and, and he slept. So we're told that as our Lord slept, a fierce, a violent windstorm came down on the lake. Now, this storm was so severe that even the fishermen who were used to navigating through all kinds of violent storms became terrified themselves. And they realized, and this is a crazy storm. We're in danger. So in desperation, having run out of options and really believing that this was the end, they woke Jesus up, telling him, we're going to die. This is it. We're going to die. This is the end. Then, with perfect poise, it says that Jesus got up and didn't say anything to the disciples, didn't say anything to, to calm their disciples down. He turned and rather spoke to the wind and raging waves and rebuked them. Well, the wind and the waves heard Jesus, and they obeyed. Then there was calm. All was still. The sky cleared. No rain. No danger. The same God who commanded the powers of the sea to swallow Jonah now silenced the power of the seas to save his son and the disciples. The God who divided the Egyptian Sea and the Jordan River to give his people freedom and land now rebuked the storm to reveal his ultimate source of salvation. And when all was calm and the fear of death had left them, the Lord then turned to his soaking wet disciples, those pale-faced disciples, and said to them, where is your faith? Didn't they learn anything from the faith of the centurion or the sinful woman with an alabaster jar of perfume? Were their hearts like the thorny, sto uh, the thorny soil where the word of God had been choked out by the cares and worries of life. Well, it appears that when they themselves were facing their own storm, all those examples of faith they had seen early in chapter 8 and the lessons of faith they had heard Jesus teach about went out the window. They completely forgot about it. 
sure they had seen it and they were happy. They may have been happy about it, just saying, oh, wow, Lord, this is wonderful. This is great. And they may have heard again that lesson, the parable of the sower. And, and, and remember, Jesus told them, I'm giving you the secrets of the kingdom of God. You want the interpretation? Well, you have it. Here it goes. They heard all that. And yet when they were in the midst of the storm, when they were tested, when they were facing danger, and when it seemed like death was imminent, again, everything went out the window. They completely forgot about everything that they had heard and seen. Again, this only goes to show that the depth of one's faith will truly be known when it's tested in difficult circumstances. Here, the disciples' faith had been tested. Oh, here, the disciples' disciples failed the test. The moment they no longer believed that Jesus said that they, they, not him, not one or two disciples, but basically all of them, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. Had they really believed, had they really trusted in what he said would happen, they wouldn't have worried. They wouldn't have worried about the storm or they wouldn't have woken him up in the way that they did. Master, master, we're going to die. No, they would have been like, probably would have gone down on their knees and, and just prayed. They would have just weathered the storm. Again, a lot of them knew what, how to take care of boats and what they needed to do. But they wouldn't have freaked out. Someone once said, no water can swallow the ship where lies the master of the ocean and earth and skies. You see, here's the thing, they should have known that to be with Christ in the boat is to be absolutely safe and secure. So after he had done this, after, after all this, instead of being filled with peace that Jesus had calmed the sea, What do we see at the end of verse 25? It says that they became fearful. Some of your translation may say that they were terrified. And it also says they were amazed. They were amazed at the elements. The wind and the waves had actually listened and obeyed. This reaction they had tells us that they hadn't yet fully grasped the power of the one that they followed. And in a sense, we're still trying to figure out who he was and what they were doing and where they were going and what's the point of all this. They probably had already been following him for about a year and a half or so, or maybe even longer, but, but they still didn't grasp. After all their teachings, everything they've been seeing and hearing, they still didn't didn't grasp it. 
before them was a regular man who slept just like you and me, who slept like every other human being, but also fully God, who, as Psalm 89.9 says, rules the raging sea and stills their surging waves. Before them was Jesus, fully man, and yet fully God. When it comes to having faith in difficult circumstances, this is one of those passages that is often referred to. I've heard a lot of teachings. I've read a lot of books, a lot of online articles. Um, There's a lot of stuff out there on this passage. As I said, I've been to a lot of studies where this has been broken down in, in all kinds of ways, and to Bible studies where it's also been talked about and discussed. Now, I, I've also heard some pretty wacky things, pretty wacky teachings, some pretty uh, far off things that, that I don't think I, I see in this passage. Um, I, I think I once heard that um, someone once say that this passage can teach you how to sleep through your own storm. I'm like, well, no, I don't, I don't see that, <laughs> but, uh, but okay. So again, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of things, but I want to just take just a few moments here sharing with you what I personally see, what I believe this passage is saying, what, I, what, what I've learned, and what I believe you all can learn also from this passage. Now, the way I see it, the boat here basically is, represents, it's a picture of the life of the believer. And in that boat is Christ and other believers as well. You're not alone in that boat. In that Christian walk, in, that, in your Christian walk, there are others who will, are also walking with the Lord. In a sense, like this church, where this, this would be, could be considered a, a boat as well. But there are other Christians there also experiencing what you're experiencing. Now, on this boat, or, or life, Jesus has told us throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, and, and in Acts, and through Paul and through all the other writers of, of, of the Gospels, of, of the letters in the New Testament, where he wants us to go, where our intended destination is. He calls us to do something. He calls us to go somewhere. He calls us to be a certain people. And... That's where he wants us to be. That's where he wants us to go. When we set out, when we start walking, when we take that step and just start walking with the Lord, we're letting him know that we trust him. 
that we trust that what he said was going to happen will happen. If he's called you and you feel like he's tugging at your heart to be a Bible teacher, to be a pastor, to be a missionary, to, to be in children's ministry, whatever, whatever it may be, you may not completely see it, understand how it's going to happen. But if he's tugging at your heart, he will eventually get there. You will eventually get there. You just have to keep, keep rowing, keep sailing, keep going. And once you set out, you're saying, yes, I'm listening and I'm obeying. I trust you. Now, Jesus sleeping, I believe, represents those times. He's silently in the background, giving us the free will to make choices and decisions while we're on this boat. Again, we have to understand that we have free will. The Lord isn't going to make you do anything. He isn't going to pull you by the ear and say, hey, you got to do this right now. He's not going to take the oar. He's not going to take the, you know, he's not going to take, he's not going to take control of the ship for you. The ship of your life. He's sometimes just going to stand in the background silently. Doesn't mean that he's not there doesn't mean that he's not around. He's just allowing you to make your own choices and decisions to see if you've really learned anything from what you've heard, from what you've read, from the things that you've studied. He wants to know whether all the help, all the guidance, all the things that he's been teaching you, if it's all coming together and, and it's helping you make the right choices, decisions. Now, what I've learned in this passage is that the storms in life, and as I mentioned earlier, there are storms in life. There will be storms in life and either will be dictated by the fear that comes with those storms or the belief that no matter what, no matter how strong, no matter how turbulent, no matter how violent, no matter how dark the skies will be, no matter how much it appears that death is imminent, Jesus will get us through that storm. If he's on the boat with us, if he's on your boat, if you're walking with him, he's on your boat and he will get you through it. And we have to trust and we have to believe that. I know it's hard, but we need to keep our eyes off all that, the craziness of, of life, of, of those storms. And remember that he said that he will always be with us. He promised to always love us. We are, his, we are God's children and which one of you would want to see your children harmed? Now, if it is the end of us, we should have even peace. 
about that. Because we know that we, we ran the race. Our time is done here. We did what the Lord called us to do. We did that faithfully. Whether it was to, to, to raise our children, or whether it was to, to help a person, a friend, a relative, whether it was to be, a, again, missionary in some far-off country or be a pastor at a church. Um, if your day has come, then he's ready to have you home. He's ready to bring you home. And we have to, again, trust and believe in that. But, but if not, it'll be rough. It'll be hard. It's going to be challenging be again raging the the raging winds and waves are going to be crashing up against you but fear not for he is with you he has you in the palm of his hand and he'll never let you go you can make you know make the choice to say you know what uh, I'm going to let go for a bit and, and walk away. And, but, you know, I'll tell you from personal experience, it's, it's even the, the storms during those moments are even crazier because you're going to try to do it on your own. You're going to try to get relief on your own. You're going to find other ways to, to cope and manage. And... I tried a lot of things and none of them worked. But again, we have to remember again just to hold on to, to the Lord. And again, that's what I believe. Um, what I've learned from this passage. And, and here's what I want to pass on to you. And it's similar again um, to what I was saying. If Jesus is on a boat with you, you have no reason to fear. I don't want to reiterate everything I just said, but that's the lesson I see here. I mean, there's a lot more. Again, I can, we can spend hours, you know, completely breaking down every single, every single um, word and, and, and verse here and, and see what the Lord wants to share with us. But, but for the sake of time, and, and I, I, that's, in a nutshell, that's what I see here, what the, this passage is teaching us and what he wants to teach you. A woman said to D.L. Moody, I have found a wonderful promise. And she quoted 56, Psalm 56.3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Let me give you a better one, said Moody, as he quoted Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I, so I want to now move on to our next passage where we'll be seeing another example of how powerful his word actually is. So let's turn to verse 26. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the region of Gerasenes, 
which is opposite Galilee. When he got out on the land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in the house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a, lot, in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times they had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into the deserted places. What is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered, entered him. And he begged him not to banish them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on a hillside. The demons, the demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man, the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him, to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. The man from whom the demons had departed begged him earnestly to be with him, but he sent him away and said, go back to your home and tell all that God has done for you. And off he went, proclaiming throughout the town how much, how much Jesus had done for him. Like most story arcs if you've done uh, studies studies on, on on stories or any kind of narrative this one here is just like that like has also has is an arc story it has an exposition or a setup an inciting incident a rising action a climax a falling action, and a resolution. In verses 26 through 29, we're given the first two, the exposition and the inciting incident. When the boat that they were sailing in reached its destination in the region of Gerasenes, there the Lord was met, not by a greeting party, not with a celebration, not with the town's leader, the mayor, the governor. None, no one special except a demon-possessed man from the town. Now again, although this precise the precise location isn't known, what is known is that uh, this town, or this place was in the midst of the Decapolis, the collection of Gentile cities 
in the Sea of Galilee, uh, around or besides the Sea of Galilee. In this particular region, pigs could be raised, sold, and eaten, which was forbidden in Jewish law and was seen as vile in every part of the Jewish territory. You just, Jews didn't eat pigs. That was a no-no. It was not allowed. And so anyone raising them, selling them, touching them, it would, it would be completely taboo. It wasn't allowed. Well, there in that region, in, in, that, in a certain area there, this demon-possessed man who for, there was a demon, this demon-possessed man who for a long time, we're told, wore no clothes and made his home in the tombs or in the cemetery. In other words, this man was just always walking around completely naked and was living among the dead. In verse 29, we're told, we begin to see the beginning, we begin to see the inciting incident of this story. So as Jesus approached, once he sees Jesus, he falls down in, in the normal posture of, of reverence and worship, and then shouted at Jesus, begging him to be left alone. What this shows us is that these demons, demons are real. Demon possession is real. But they're more than just influencers. They were more than just influencing him. They were actually living in him. Controlling his thoughts, his speech, and his behavior. These particular demons caused the man to be extremely violent so much so, so much so that when he'd regu- that they'd regularly seize him with violent convulsions and give him violent convulsions and when he was guarded he'd break the chains and shackles that were intended to restrain him and those demons would drive him out into the deserted places. The irony is, is that in spite of all the torment these demons were putting him through, the man had to beg the Lord, don't torment me. Don't, they they were, again, also freaking out. Don't torment me. Now he said this because, again, he thought that Jesus was there to add to his suffering. But the fact is, he was there to do the opposite, to remove the suffering, to take it away. Now, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're experiencing at the moment, if, if, it's in a bad, if you're in a bad place and you think you've done some really horrible things. Understand this, Jesus will be there. He'll always be there 
to take away your spiritual suffering, not add on to it, not add on to it. There are certain people that have this idea, this mistaken belief that, man, I've completely messed up and and Jesus is going to give me a good belt whipping for what I've done. We start to see them as our, maybe in a way that our parents used to discipline us. And that's wrong. But nowhere do we see Jesus saying, come here, let me, let me give you a good whooping. No, he's there to, to relieve your suffering, to embrace you, to hold you, and to tell you, I'm here to help you. Hold on to me. Don't let go. Trust me. I'm here to, to put that band-aid on that bruise and, and to give you fresh water in those moments that you're dying of thirst. And Come to me. Come to me and, and let me help you. He's there again to, to take away our spiritual suffering, not to add on to it. Now in verses 30 to 33, we're given the rising action and the climax of the story. Now we have to understand that Jesus wasn't naive. He recognized the demon's presence and asked him directly what his name was. Knowing the power Jesus held and that again God can't be lied to he had no choice but to reveal his identity and submit to Jesus' demands so he identified himself as legion which in all reality is more of a number than an actual name see during those days A Roman legion was a military unit consisting of about 5,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So what this meant was that this wasn't just a demon with just a name, which, again, by the way, God knows all their names. He knows each one of those demons' names. He knows who they all are. This was an entire army of demons that had invaded, conquered, and had taken possession of just one single man, one single person. Now, it's at this point that we reach the climax of the story in verses 32 to 33. Now that they were exposed and their doom was imminent, They begged him. They begged him for anything other than being banished to the abyss. Now, what's the abyss? Some of you may be asking, where is that? What is the abyss? Well, this place, the abyss, is probably the same abyss or the bottomless pit described in Revelation 9-11. Apparently, this place was a place of imprisonment for certain demonic angels, certain demonic spirits. So rather than being sent there, they again begged for permission 
to enter a herd of pigs that were simply feeding nearby on a hillside. Well, Jesus granted permission, but as we've seen, wherever they're at and whatever they possess, there's no tranquility, only turmoil. So the moment the last demon had left, had come out of the man and entered into the pigs, we're told that the entire herd ran down the steep, the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, what those evil spirits did to those pigs shows us their destructive nature. See, Jesus allowed them to enter the pigs because he wanted everyone to see and understand that their true intentions, what they really wanted to do, was do the same thing to each and every single person. That's what they intend to do with man. Just like their leader, Satan, their goal is to steal, to kill, and destroy people who were made in the image of God. So if you're here, you're watching this lesson, and you're not a believer, this is exactly what the devil is trying to do to you. And you may not be possessed by the devil, but he is trying to destroy you. But before he destroy you, before he actually destroys you, he'll do what he can to get the most out of you, to further his own agenda, to further his own evil agenda. But guess what? When you're no longer useful to him, he'll eventually do to you what he did to those pigs in our story. He'll run you down the hill of life, kill you, and bring you down with him into the lake of fire where you'll spend eternity drowning and suffering in torment. But you see, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to go to that extent. It doesn't have to be that way. You can open the door to your heart and allow Jesus Christ to come in and just placing your faith and trust in him. When you do this, the Holy Spirit makes his home in you. And when you breathe your last breath in this world, you'll be with the Lord for all eternity. Now, before we end and at the end of our, my message here, if you've never done that, if you've never opened the door to your heart, I, I do. I want to lead you in a prayer to accept Jesus in your heart. But it has to be, again, sincere. That's, you're going to have to really, it's got to be from a sincere heart. But before, again, I, I do, I want to finish breaking down this passage. So finally, in, in verses 34 to 39, we see the falling action and the resolution of the story. Verse 34 tells us that the news of what had happened here spread rapidly. But rather than marveling, rather than being amazed again at, just like the disciples, rather than being amazed at what Jesus had just done, 
rather than marveling at the sight of a sane and decent man that they knew had, were, was once demon-possessed, verse 37 says that they were gripped with fear. So instead of thanking him, instead of showing their appreciation that one of their own had been healed, had been restored back to sanity, they asked Jesus to leave them. He said, get out of here. Please, get out of here. We don't want you here. Leave. What do you think they were scared of? What do you think they were so terrified of? More miracles of healing and restoration? No. They were scared of the negative impact the Lord would have on their economy. Now, I've learned enough from watching Fox Business News that when someone or something destabilizes an economy, whether it's a local, regional, national economy, investors, producers, and consumers panic. They get scared. And if that panic isn't relieved, if that destabilization isn't fixed on time, it can lead to an economic crash. And it could lead to economic devastation. But that's what was happening here. The people didn't care about the miracle. They cared about all the money they had just lost with all those dead pigs that were just in that lake. A lake full of floating dead pigs. And all they saw was lost money. Money being burned, thrown away. Their economy in shambles. And probably, again, what they were seeing was all the money they might lose if he did more miracles. It seems like the cares of the world and the world's riches had choked out the fruit that could have blossomed from that beautiful miracle. And now they were expelling the most powerful and the most caring person the world would ever know without seeking his help for any of their friends or neighbors. They knew that some of their friends were sick and dying. Maybe some of them were also demon-possessed. People they cared about, their friends. And yet, rather than inviting him to help out those loved ones, those people that they supposedly cared about, they told him, get out of here. Leave. You're going to ruin us. How sad. How disappointing. And, you know, we, how often, you know, does that happen in the lives of people who say that follow him? They say they see, you know, God's doing something in their lives that scares them out, freaks them out, and they just tell them to leave rather than saying, please come and help my mom. Please come and help my Please come and help my husband, my, my wife. 
they're suffering, they're hurting, they're sick. Please, Lord, come over. Instead, they're tell them, leave, get out. So let me start to close up here by backing up just a little bit to share this with you. In our first story, the disciples had failed their test of faith when fear made them forget what Jesus had told them. In this story, an entire town had failed their test of faith when they rejected what they saw out of fear it was going to cost them. If you've ever wondered why most people reject Jesus or push him away, a lot of times it's because of fear. Fear of what they may lose and what it's going to cost them. Let me give you a few examples here. Put yourself, as hard as it is, but I'm asking you to try. Put yourself in the shoes of a pro-abortion politician who all of a sudden realizes, realizes that following Jesus is going to mean changing their stance on abortion. How do you think they may feel? How do you, what do you think they may be experiencing? They may be scared of losing that next election. Put yourself in the shoes of a famous actor, musician, or a celebrity who realizes, who realizes that by publicly following Jesus, it's going to lead to a loss of popularity. Maybe no more, not as many singing or, or acting engagements. Their wealth, their popularity is going to drop. They might be scared that all that they had been working hard for their entire lives, everything that they've been, that, that got them to that point, would all crumble to pieces. Everything they worked for would be, would be lost. Now, here's something even maybe more simpler. Put, your sh- put yourself in the shoes of someone who's maybe working a job that may be considered immoral, that may be considered you know, just completely wrong. And all of a sudden, they realize that following him is going to mean quitting. And that's all they've ever done for years. They might be scared of how they're going to feed their kids, how they're going to feed their, how they're going to pay the bills, how they're going to survive. It could be, again, something simple of as Someone is, is a bartender. Man, I've been doing this all these years, and now you know, I, I feel guilty and convicted for serving this alcohol to all these people. I want to quit, but how? I don't have an education. I don't have anything else to fall back on. How am I going to, how are my kids going to eat? It's tough. It's not easy. People are scared. So you can see that when giving a choice to follow Jesus or reject them, a lot of people just simply choose to reject them because they're just scared of how it's going to affect their lives. Maybe some of you have had similar fears before coming to the Lord. And if so, what did it take 
for you to follow Jesus. I know that for me and for many others, it took a step of faith. It took a step of faith to trust that Jesus Christ knows my situation and that he was going to help me. He was going to guide me through the unknown territory of following him. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to handle this? What about this person? What about that person? What about this situation? And, and, and I had to stop asking and I just had to trust I had to stop making excuses and I just had to, to trust that he was going to guide me. He was going to help me, that he was going to take care of me. In that, again, uncharted territory. If this is where you're at, I, I want to close by just giving you two Bible verses that I hope will encourage you to take that step of faith and place your trust in Christ. The first is in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lead in your own understanding. And the second one is found in Jeremiah 24, verses 11 through 14. There, God says, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you. Now, I just realized I got one more verse. That, let me, it's really quick here. The next thing we see is that the man who had just been freed from the demons wanted to answer Jesus' call to follow Jesus, but Jesus surprised him with a response he didn't expect. He tells him, go back home and tell all that God has done for you. Here Jesus was telling them that if he really, truly wanted to follow him, he'd go back home. And tell all those fearful friends, all those fearful neighbors, what Jesus had done for him. Well, that man obeyed instantly. He took the good news to that town that had expelled Jesus and told them exactly what Jesus had done for him. And for many, following Jesus on the nomadic road would have been easy compared to that assignment. The point of this is the point is this. The call to faith is a call to commitment to the mission Jesus defines for us, not a call to a task we want to do. Have you heard the mission Jesus has for you? Are you committed to testify, to go where he leads you? As I've said I titled this morning's message a faith tested by fear your faith will be tested in all kinds of ways and one of the ways it will be tested is by fear how will you react how will you again we we don't we can't really answer that question until that moment comes I can sit here and tell you uh, uh, 
tell you, I'll, I'll do all the right things. But I won't know until I'm actually confronted with it. And I hope and I pray, I always ask, Lord, I pray that I do the right thing and that, I, that regardless of what is going on around me, all the chaos, that I'll just focus on me. And that's what your prayers ought to be as well. To just hold on to him. Don't let fear overcome you. Trust in him. There is no fear in Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have us here and that you are our Lord, our God, the one and only true God. And we thank you that we're able to worship you, to praise you, to adore you, and to see you as our Savior. Lord, I pray for those who are in a place or are experiencing a storm, Lord, that they will surround themselves with people that will help them, that will show them, that will encourage them just to keep their eyes on you. They will keep to, to, to remember that, to remind them that you will always be there and they just have to call out to you to help them. If there's anyone, again, watching and listening and, and you're ready to open your hearts to Jesus and accept Him as your Lord and Savior with all sincerity, with all your heart, pray this, Lord Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I failed. I confess my sins to you now. I lay I completely naked before you, Lord, and, and expose it all to you, Lord. All those hidden sins, forgive me, Lord. Forgive me of those sins. I confess that Jesus is Lord and that he died on the cross for my sins. Lord, fill me now your Holy Spirit. Empty me of all that sin and fill me, Lord, with your Spirit. Guide me, teach me. Thank you for making me born again. Thank you for making me your child. I accept your forgiveness. Now help me to walk according to your ways the rest of my life. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.